thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. We have people in the other room trying to blow on a shofar. As you can hear, they're not doing a very good job, but it's okay. I'm sure they're having fun. But uh, this morning, we're going to start looking at Luke chapter 22, uh, which is really one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Luke. It's also the second longest chapter. It has 71 verses. And uh, this long chapter deals with several very important things leading up to the the end of Jesus's life. We see the plot to kill Jesus. Uh, We have Jesus, the Passover lamb. We have Jesus warning that he's going to be betrayed, warning that he's going to be denied. Uh, We have him sharing about what true greatness is. We have the amazing prayer uh, of Jesus. We have Judas's betrayal. We have Jesus's arrest. We have Peter's denial. And we have the start of Jesus's trial all in this chapter. And so this chapter is packed full of some really, really significant things at the end of Jesus's life. And since there's so much going on here and it's such a long chapter, we're going to take a couple Sundays uh, to look at these things and break them down and, and you know, kind of take a more in-depth look. And so So this morning, we're going to focus on the first two things that we see here, which is the plot to kill Jesus and then Jesus, the Passover lamb. And so let's start by looking at the plot to kill Jesus and and what transpires with that in Luke chapter uh, 22, uh, verses 1 through 6. Colson, when you hit that for me. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill Jesus, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude." Now, we've already noted through the Gospels that the religious leaders have wanted to kill Jesus for quite some time, but they have a problem. The problem is he's so popular. The problem is that the crowds and the multitudes love Jesus, and so they're scared of arresting him. They're scared of killing him because they're scared of how the the multitude will respond to that because of Jesus' popularity. So they came up with a plan. It started back in chapter 19. They decided, you know what, we're going to discredit him. We're going to come to him and we're going to pose these catch-22 questions to him, like should you pay taxes to Caesar or not, and things like that. And he's going to answer in such a way that's going to discredit him. The crowd's no longer going to like him. And so when we arrest him and kill him, no one's going to care. Well, in chapter 20, we saw how that worked out. They went to discredit Jesus. They asked him all these questions, and his responses just caused them to marvel. And the ones who looked bad and were discredited were the religious leaders, not Jesus. And so their first plan in trying to discredit him in order to get him to where they could um, arrest him and kill him, that didn't go well. Well, now as we come here to chapter 22, Luke tells us the religious leaders are still plotting. They're still trying to figure out how can we kill Jesus and not have the multitude upset at us at the same time. And, you know, they they tried their first way. It didn't work. They're they're trying to come up with a plan. And 
something very interesting happens. Um, we have Judas Iscariot come and kind of give them a get-out clause. But before we look into that, I want you to notice something that we've seen with the religious leaders and, and we see even more now. Notice that they're only fearful of one group. There's a, there's a person that they should fear, and that's God. But, you know, they're about to kill an innocent man, which obviously, according to the law, was, you know, not something that God would want. But, but that's not something that concerns them at all. They don't care how God feels. They don't care what God thinks. All they're concerned about is the crowd. How are the people going to feel if we murder Jesus? How are the people going to feel if we do these things to him? They're, they're just drawn and moved by fear of people. This once again shows us that these religious leaders, they only cared what the people thought. They didn't care what God thought. You know, throughout the gospel, Jesus has revealed that the religious leaders were hypocrites. Outwardly, they wanted to be seen as these great spiritual men, but inwardly, they were very far from God. And here we see it again. They don't have a true fear of God. They only have a fear of man. What they cared about was what people thought of them, not what God thought of them, and it's very clear in their plot to kill the Son of God. They obviously don't have any concern of the judgment of God or what God thinks. And I think this is a great warning for us. We should never care more about what people think than what God thinks. You know, on Thursday night, we talked a little bit about that on this culture, you know, with the truth of God's word, it's not popular. And they label us all these different things because we stand for that truth and we declare that truth and we say we're going to believe in that truth and we're going to call sin what it is because the Bible says it. You know, but oftentimes in the Christian world, people have greater fear of man and are shying away from the truth of God's word because, oh, I don't want to be labeled this. I don't want the culture to think this of me. I don't want this or that instead of, you know what, I'm more concerned with what God thinks. I'm more concerned that he says this is true and I'm going to stand for it because of what he thinks, not because of what the culture thinks. So these religious leaders, they're desperate to kill Jesus, but they fear how the people will respond. And now as they're trying to come up with a plot, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus's 12 disciples, he gives them a solution to their dilemma. You know, Judas is known obviously most for betraying Jesus, but John's gospel gives us another insight into some of the other problems that Judas had. It wasn't that he just all of a sudden was this evil man. You know, he pretty much always had issues. Um, John chapter 12, starting in verse 3, we're told, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrant oil. But one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, if you stop right there, you think, man, Judas is such a good guy. You know, he's thinking, man, we could have used this oil. We could have sold it. And look what we could have done with the money. We could have given it to the poor. Oh, Judas, you're so great. You're so thoughtful. You're thinking about poor people. But no, he wasn't. Notice what verse 6 says. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. See, John reveals something else about Judas. Judas was the one that was entrusted with the money that the disciples had for their own needs, that they had for the ministry that they were doing. Judas hung on to all of that, and he wanted extra money, not so that they could give it to the poor, but because he dipped in there and took as much as he wanted when he wanted. He was a thief, and so 
He was a, someone, obviously, who had many issues. Most commentators believe that Judas never really believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Judas was just along for the ride for what he could get out of it. You know, and obviously, fame, popularity, money, there was different things that he thought were great. Um, but, you know, I think it's seen that he really didn't believe in Jesus, not only in the fact that he stole, but as we're going to see here, in the fact that he's willing to betray Jesus. Now, before Jesus, Judas goes to the religious leaders with his plan to betray Jesus, I want you to notice something I think is very important about him in verse 3. We're told that Satan entered Judas. I think something we need to understand about what's going to happen with Jesus' betrayal, with his trial, ultimately with his death, You know, we think, well, well, Judas was a part of that. The religious leaders were a part of that. Yes, but really behind all of it was something supernatural. Behind all of it was Satan desiring for Jesus to be killed. The ultimate battle was with Satan. And I think that's important for us to remember as believers that really our ultimate battle isn't against people. It's against supernatural elements, Satan and his demons. Ephesians chapter 6 makes this very clear to us. It says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These verses make very clear our ultimate fight is against a supernatural foe, Satan and his demons. It's not against people and flesh and blood, which is so often what we get wrapped up in. But we need to remember there's something far more significant and far more evil that's behind these things. But I think it's also important to note that the fact that Satan enters Judas does not take away from Judas's personal responsibility for the choices he made. Satan can only effectively work in someone who chooses to allow that work. In the same way, when Satan tempts us, it doesn't take away our personal responsibility for the choices that we make. You know, as a pastor, I hear a lot of people use a common phrase, oh, Satan made me do it. But that's actually not true. Satan doesn't force you to sin. He definitely tempts. He definitely deceives. He definitely does a lot of things that cause us to make choices or or, or leads us to make choices that are sinful, but it doesn't force us. You know, the first time we see Satan on the scene is in the Garden of Eden, and he tempts Eve. He doesn't force Eve and take the apple or fruit, it wasn't probably an apple, and shove it down her throat. He doesn't force her to do that. Ultimately, he deceives her, the Bible said, and then she makes a choice because of that deception to fall for his lies. So Satan definitely wants to trick, wants to deceive, wants to tempt, but we're responsible with how we respond. We're responsible for the choices that we make. We can't blame it on him. Ultimately, we need to put on the armor of God. We need to resist uh, Satan and his temptations and lies. Well, Judas doesn't do this. Judas definitely succumbs to what Satan was doing. Satan actually enters Judas. And notice now what Judas does in verse 4. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now, Judas comes to the religious leaders and he says, you know, I got a plan. I know you guys want to kill Jesus. I, I got a I got a solution to your problem. His plan is ultimately to betray Jesus, but notice where? In the absence of the multitude. 
You see, that's the issue the religious leaders have. They're scared of how the multitude's going to respond. If we arrest Jesus, if we kill Jesus, the multitude's going to probably get upset because they love Jesus. How are we going to do this? Well, Judas comes along and says, you know what? I can give you an opportunity, tell you where Jesus is going to be out when the multitude's not around, and that's when you can get him, and that's when you can do your thing. Well, they like Judas's plan because it helps them get past their big issue, and they say, you know what? We'll pay you, Judas. We'll pay you 30 pieces of silver. Now, that's something I want you to note because it's very significant. Because in the Old Testament, it's prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11 that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And here we see this exact number. The Jewish religious leaders say, you know what? We'll give you uh, 30 pieces of silver to do this. And Judas is happy to take that. But the Bible told us far before this ever took place that that's the exact amount that would be received to betray Jesus, the Messiah. So the religious leaders, they like this plan because it's in the absence of the multitude. They offer Judas this money. Hey, betray Jesus. Tell us a time when we can come where the multitude's not there, and then we'll take it from that point on. So while the religious leaders are now preparing, they, they got this plan, they got the, you know, they're working with Judas to betray Jesus when the multitude's not there, they're going to work on how they're going to do that. Luke now shifts gears and gets to the second main point that he's going to share with us in this chapter, and that's the fact that Jesus is now going to take this Passover feast with himself and the disciples. Let's see what transpires here and what we can learn. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room while I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. It's now the day of the Passover feast, the day of unleavened bread where their Passover lamb must be killed. And, and so Jesus tells Peter and John, you know what, guys, I want you to go prepare the Passover feast so that you and the rest of us disciples can come and take that together. And so they say, well, okay, well, well, where do you want us to do this? And Jesus gives them some specific instructions for where they should go. He tells them, you know what, you're going to meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, among a city that was hustling and bustling with millions of people at that time, you would think, how in the world are they going to find one single man carrying a pitcher of water? Well, actually, this is a good sign because at Jesus' time, carrying water was woman's work. Almost all you would ever see would be women going to the well, carrying the water back to the home. You wouldn't see men doing that. So the fact that there was a man carrying a pitcher of water would have been an oddity. And so, the, oh, there's the one man in all this group that's carrying water. Let's follow him. And so they follow this man, and Jesus says, go to the house that he's going to. And when you get to the house, you need to talk to the master of the house, the owner of the house, and say to him, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you an upper room that's furnished. And in that room, you are to prepare the Passover meal. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't have to tell Peter and John what to include in the Passover meal, how they need to put it together, what goes on with it. Because Peter and John, from the day that they were born as Jewish men, every single year would have celebrated the Passover feast. 
So they would have been very clear as to what to include, and they also would have known what it symbolized, what it meant, because for their whole life, every single year, they would have done that. You see, the Jews had seven main feasts that they would celebrate every year. And the two most significant ones that go together are the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the disciples would have very much understood all about both of these two feasts. Well, as they come together and take this feast, Jesus is going to share something new, something that really is going to blow their mind of, you know what, there's a new way in which I want you to focus on this feast and see this feast in a new way. But before we look at the new things that Jesus reveals about this, I want to make sure we understand the old. I want to make sure we understand and are aware of what the Passover symbolized to the Jews of Jesus' day. Because these disciples didn't need a history lesson because they already did it every single year. But I want to make sure we're aware of what they used to celebrate so when we look at what Jesus changes, we can understand how it's symbolic and what he's talking about. Now, in order to understand what the Passover and Unleavened Bread feast were all about, you need to go back to the book of Exodus. It's in the book of Exodus where we have the origin of Passover, the origin of this feast of unleavened bread. You probably know or have heard about the story of the Exodus. We have Moses, who God calls to deliver the nation of Israel from the Egyptians. They had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God meets Moses in a burning bush, and he says, I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go, so God starts sending plagues on the nation of Egypt, ten of them. First was water into blood, then there was frogs, then there was lice, then there was flies, then there was diseased animals, there was boils, there was hail with fire, locusts, and darkness. And after all of those things, which would have just been misery and horrible, Pharaoh still won't let the people go. And so God says, I'm going to send one final plague. I'm going to kill every firstborn. But before he sends this final plague to kill every firstborn, he comes to Moses And he tells Moses and the nation of Israel, there's something that you need to do. Exodus 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Here in Exodus chapter 12, God gives six specific things that he wants the Israelites to do in order to remember the deliverance he's going to bring to them from their slavery in Egypt. And these six specific things are things that take place during this Passover feast, during this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I want you to notice these six things so first we can have an understanding of what they did through the Passover, but also as we understand this better, we'll make more sense as we hear the new things that Jesus brings to this feast. The Lord starts off here by telling Moses, 
tell the nation of Israel, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This is extremely significant because God is now changing the Israelite calendar. Hey guys, I want this month, the month that I deliver you from slavery, to now be the first month in your calendar. We're going to change things up because as the year starts, I want you to remember what I did for you. I want you to remember the great deliverance I brought to you. Before God did this, the month of uh, the first month of the Jewish calendar was the month Tishri, and now God changes it, and the first month is going to be the month Nisan. Not the car, but the Jewish month. So this would be like starting our year in April instead of in January. Obviously, that would be a significant change if God says, you know what, we're going to start now in April every year instead of January because I'm going to do something so significant in April that every time the year starts, I want you to remember what I've done. Well, God's about to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He's about to give them a new beginning, and he wants them to remember at the beginning of each year this great deliverance that he's going to bring. So the first thing that I want you to note about these feasts is that God changes the Israelite calendar to start with the month in which he brings deliverance. So God changes the calendar month to start now, but within this month, there's some specific things that God tells these Israelites that they need to do. The first thing is on the 10th day of this month, every man had to take for himself a lamb for his household. But you couldn't just take any lamb. It had to be a lamb without blemish and a lamb that was one year old. So the second thing I want you to note here that... uh, They had to do is that on the 10th day of the month, every household had to take a one-year-old lamb without blemish. Now, after you picked your lamb without blemish, you had to keep that lamb from the 10th to the 14th. And what you would do is you would actually take that lamb into your home. And especially those with young kids, you start to get attached to this little cute lamb and and it's there in your house for four days and you feed it and you take care of it. And on the 14th at night you were then to kill that lamb. And there was a significance of that because it was meant to be something that was more personal because this lamb was something that was going to pay for your sin and it wasn't just to be some random lamb that you pick and have no attachment to, but no, it's going to be in your house for a bit before this happens. And then you have to explain to your kids, hey, we're going to kill this lamb. What? Why? Well, let me tell you why. And the whole reason for it would come out and the father would explain to the kids why they were doing that and what it signified. So on the 14th day at twilight, you would have to take the lamb and kill it. You would have to explain to your family about these things. So the third thing um, I want you to note about these feasts is that on the 14th day of the month at twilight, every household had to kill their lamb without blemish. Now, once you killed the lamb at twilight on the 14th day, then you were to take the blood from the lamb that you just killed and you were to place it on the doorpost and the lintel. Now, most of us are probably very familiar with what the doorposts are. They're the two posts on the sides of the door. The the lintel is the horizontal uh, post that that goes across uh, at the top. And so you were to take the blood from the lamb and you were to put it on the top of the lintel there and on the doorpost um, as well. So the fourth thing that we need to note uh, is they took the blood of the lamb without blemish and put it on the doorpost and the lintel. And after you did that, then you would take the lamb 
you would roast it in fire, and then you would eat it with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. Um, And so the fifth thing that uh, I want you to note is that once they did that, put the blood on that, then they had to roast the lamb in fire with unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and eat it. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, God tells us the reason. Well, why are we spreading blood all over you know, the place? Well, what's the purpose of that? Well, God gives them a specific reason for why they were to do that. Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13 says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now remember, there's been nine plagues. The tenth one's coming. This is the final one. It's the killing of the firstborn. And God says, for those of you who have placed the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, when I send the death angel to come and kill the firstborn, he's going to see that blood and he's going to pass over your house and there's not going to be a firstborn in that house who is judged and who is killed. This is why we have the name Passover because the angel of death passes over the homes that have the blood on them that protects them from God's judgment. The movie The Prince of Egypt is an animated account of the story of the Exodus. Uh, It's actually very well done. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to do that. But there's a portion in the movie where it depicts this scene where I think they've done a good job of kind of displaying. Obviously, we don't know exactly what it would have looked like with the death angel coming and doing this. But it's a couple-minute clip uh, that I just wanted to show you to kind of give you a bit of a visual uh, of what this would have possibly uh, been like. Uh, And go ahead and take a look. God has come to me again, saying, Take a lamb, and with its blood, mark the lintel and posts of every door. For tonight, I shall pass through the land of Egypt and smite all the firstborn. But when I see the blood upon your door, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not enter.
Well, as you can see from that, there's, I don't know, I thought it was, it's a good depiction of what takes place. But obviously you have, I like the scene where, you know, they're the mom with the kids and they're all frightened, but, you know, they have the blood on the door uh, and they're protected from God's judgment because of that. But obviously those who did not put the blood of the lamb on their door, they suffered uh, the judgment and the firstborn was killed. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 17, we're told something about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on the same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your house, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger or a native of the Lamb. So Passover began on the 10th day of the month. On the 14th day, they killed and ate the Passover lamb. And the 14th day of the month was the first day of unleavened bread. And for the next seven days, they ate only unleavened bread. So from the 14th to the 21st day, they would eat only unleavened bread. And God says, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. So this first Passover of unleavened bread, this was out of necessity. There wasn't time for them to actually put the leaven into the bread and, and let it rise. So they just had to go eat unleavened bread because they were taken off so quick. But as they remember that, it was something that they wouldn't have leaven in their bread as a reminder of how God delivered them from Egypt. So the sixth thing I want you to note is that on the 14th day until the 21st day of the month, they were only allowed to eat unleavened bread. So every year, Jesus' disciples, they would have gone through this. They would have celebrated the ritual of Passover, of unleavened bread. They would have understood it. They would have known what it meant. And that is what they're expecting. They're expecting to go into this upper room with Jesus to celebrate this Passover feast and to remember the same things, to look back and see God's deliverance from Egypt, to look back and see how God protected them from his judgment. And, and that's what they were expecting because that is what they did every single year as they remembered this. But Jesus has something new to reveal to them and for us to look at as well. Let's see what happens as they come together to partake of this Passover feast. Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So Jesus now sits down in the upper room with his disciples. They're all gathered there. You've probably seen pictures and paintings with them all together uh, at one table sitting together. And, you know, they're, they're partaking of this Passover feast. And Jesus starts by saying to them, you know what? With fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This was a very passionate moment for Jesus, more so for him than for the disciples, because still up to this point, the disciples have not bought into what Jesus has been telling them that he's going to die. 
Jesus knows he's going to be arrested tonight. He knows his time is short. He knows he's going to die soon. And this is his last time that he's going to have just him and the disciples together. And, oh, I fervently have waited for this. I've longed for this time, just you and me, where I'm going to reveal something so important for you to understand. And I don't think it was so much that, you know, this was the last time he was going to spend with him before he got sacrificed. I think it was now the culmination of why he came, why he was born, why he lived. It was all to sacrifice himself on the cross he knows that moment has now come and he's ready to finally have this last time revealing this wonderful truth to the disciples jesus goes and tells them i will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of god comes jesus has not yet celebrated a passover since that time to now he's waiting and the bible says for him to gather the church to him. And as we come to be with him, the Bible speaks of the great marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're all going to have this wonderful meal together with Jesus, and that'll be the next time he partakes, but until then, he will not. But the most important thing I want to draw your attention to is what Jesus says in verses 19 and 20, because he brings something new to this feast that they would have not known about. He says this, And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which was given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. What Jesus does here is not the normal thing that the host of the Passover meal would say. You see, every family had the the man who was the head of that family, and he would lead the Passover meal. And he would grab different things like the bread and the wine, and he would speak certain things about them that reminded them of Egypt and God's deliverance. When you picked up the bread, they would say, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who's needy come and eat the Passover meal. That's what the disciples were waiting for Jesus to say, but he says something very different. It's interesting that everything in the Passover meal was symbolic. It had symbolic meaning. This wasn't like this great feast of, oh, we're so excited because it's our favorite meal. The purpose of everything had symbolic meaning to it. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of slavery. The salt water reminded them of the tears that they shed in in oppression to Egypt. The lamb reminded them of the blood that was shed that was put on the doorpost and lintel to protect them from God's judgment. The unleavened bread reminded them that God freed them from slavery. They didn't have time to even cook uh, normal bread, but they had to use unleavened bread because God removed them from Egypt so quickly. And now Jesus says, this bread is my body, which is given for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You see, Jesus didn't give the normal explanation of the meaning of these foods pointing back to Egypt. He now says, you know what, there's a new meaning and it points to me and something that I'm about to do for you. And you might not fully get it yet, but you're going to get it in about 24 hours. You're going to realize what I'm talking about because I'm about to do this for you. And I want you to remember me. As you eat this bread, you're going to remember my body, which is given for you. As you drink this wine, you're going to remember my blood that was shed for you. Jesus is telling them the Passover has a new meaning. I'm now the lamb that's going to be killed. It's his death that's going to enable God to pass over our sins and accept us. You see, the six things that God ultimately had the Israelites do to remember the Exodus, to remember what God did in the Passover and unleavened bread, there was a bigger purpose far beyond that they, something that they could understand. They, they only looked back 
And they didn't realize, actually, all of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus, the sacrificial system, all the feasts, everything is preparing them and pointing them to Jesus. These six things weren't just for the Israelites to remember what God did in the past. They were also to prepare them and point them to the Messiah that was going to come and do something far greater in the future. All of these things are a picture of the deliverance that Jesus would offer the world. And I want us to connect these six things that they did every single year as they remembered Passover with the wonderful symbolic picture of what Jesus did for us. The first thing we noted is that the Israelite calendar was changed. God said, you know what? I now want the month of Nisan, this month I deliver you, to be the first month of the calendar so that you will remember at the beginning of the year the new beginning I gave to you as I delivered you from the Israelites. But this isn't the only time that God did something to cause the calendar to change. When Jesus delivered us from our sin on the cross, when he died for our sin on the cross, the calendar globally was changed. After Jesus' death on the cross, the calendar was divided into what happened before Christ died, B.C., and what happened after Christ died, A.D. You see, only the Israelite calendar changed back in Exodus because only God delivered the Israelites back in Exodus. But the calendar globally changes when Jesus dies because God died for the sin of the entire world. The second thing we noted was that on the 10th day of the month, every household had to take a lamb without blemish. But all of this was pointing to the, with the, the real lamb without blemish, the, the sinless lamb, Jesus Christ. In John's gospel, in, in chapter 1, you go back one. It says in verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, notice what he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you're ever reading John's gospel and you first come to that, thinking, what is he talking about? He's talking about something that the Jews would have been very familiar with. They're always sacrificing a lamb every Passover. Why? For the sins of the nation of Israel, remembering what God did to pass over the judgment that was there. And he's saying, hey, behold, the final lamb, the true lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And what's he going to do? He's going to take away the sins of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The third thing we noted is that on the 14th day of the month at twilight, every household had to kill their lamb without blemish. And this is the most obvious picture of Jesus because on that night, the night when everyone was sacrificing their lambs, Jesus was sacrificed on the cross for our sins. On the 14th day of the month, Nisan AD 33, Jesus was crucified, killed at twilight. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. The fourth thing, we noted was that the blood of the lamb without blemish had to be put on the doorpost and lintel. The purpose of this was so that God's judgment was coming with the final plague to kill the firstborn. God would pass over. He wouldn't pour his judgment upon that house. Why? Because the blood was there to appease him. Well, this is also a wonderful picture of Jesus. The Israelites and the Egyptians had the judgment of God coming upon them. The only way to escape that judgment was for the blood of the Lamb. Well, we had the judgment of God coming upon us because of our sin. 
And the only way to escape the judgment of our sin is the fact that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for our sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Only those who trust in Jesus' sacrifice, only those who place their faith in what Jesus has done on the cross and the shed blood that he did to pay for our sins will be saved from God's judgment that all of us deserve because of our sin. The fifth thing we noted was the lamb must be roasted in fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and eaten ready to leave Egypt. And once again, this is another picture of Christ. The lamb had to be roasted in fire. If you look in the Bible, fire is almost always a picture of judgment. Obviously, the greatest judgment of all is hell. What is one of the depicting pictures? Fire. Jesus took on himself the judgment that we deserve from God so that we wouldn't have to. But you know what? The lamb was also to be eaten with unleavened bread leaven in the bible is a picture of sin jesus didn't have any sin unleavened no sin he was completely without blemish he was sinless the lamb was also to be eaten with bitter herbs hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says jesus tasted the bitterness of death and something else interesting to note in Exodus 12:46, God says one more specific thing that they were to do with this lamb before they roast it and eat it. He says, you know what? Don't break any of its bones. And that's kind of significant. If you've ever prepared any type of thing, you know, it's easy to snap bones and break it as you're kind of, you know, uh, partaking of it and eating it. He said, don't break any of its bones. Well, well, why? Well, this was something specific pointing to, once again, Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 32 Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. See, back in Exodus, God set this all up because ultimately he knew when he sent the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ, that none of Jesus' bones would be broken. The sixth and final thing that we noted was on the 14th day until the 21st day of the month, they were only allowed to eat unleavened bread. Now, I already mentioned unleavened is a picture of sin, and ultimately unleavened is a picture with Jesus of obviously being sinless, but it's also a picture of, of freedom from that. On the 14th day is when the lamb was sacrificed and the blood protected them from God's judgment. And the next seven days, they were to eat unleavened bread to remind them of how God brought them out of their slavery. Focus on how God delivered you from being slaves. I think once again, this is a great picture of what Christ has done for us because Jesus' death on the cross on the 14th day of the month made it possible for us to be delivered from slavery to sin. And we need to remember that reality that we're no longer bound. We're no longer bound by the power and, more importantly, the penalty of sin because of what Jesus Christ did to pay for our sin and give us freedom from it. 
So as you can see, these six things that God gave to the Israelites to do weren't just for them to remember and look back to the past, but it was also something to prepare them for the future, to prepare them for the Messiah, to prepare them for Jesus who was coming and would be the ultimate sacrifice once and for all for the sin of the world. So as Jesus partakes of the feast of Passover, of unleavened bread, he's there with his disciples and he shares this new wonderful meaning. It's all now going to point to me, guys. This is what I want you to remember. It's great to remember what God did for the nation of Israel back in the past, but there's something greater that God's going to do, and it's going to happen in the next 24 hours. And I want you to remember, I'm giving my life for the sins of the world. I'm laying it down. And take these things, and they're symbolic of that truth. Now, as I read the passage of what Jesus said, you probably thought, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it does, because when we take communion, we read that passage over and over again. Perhaps you didn't know that it was connected to Passover and that Jesus totally changed the meaning and pointed it to himself. But this is what we as a church refer to as communion or the Lord's Supper, taking the bread and taking the wine. And it's symbolic pointing back to the cross, remembering Jesus giving his life and shedding his blood to pay for our sins. And you know what? This is something that all of Jesus' followers are to do, not just to Jews. You see, Passover was just meant for them. It was something to remind them of how God delivered them. But this is something for any follower, any person who chooses to accept Jesus Christ. It's something that we should do to remember him. The early church did this often, and we see this through church history of this continual, do this in remembrance of me. Take time regularly to remember what I've done for you. So the origins of communion starts there in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, where Jesus takes the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he then points all of these things back to himself and what he was about to do. God established the, piece of, the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread to remind the Jews of how he delivered them, to remind the Jews of how he stopped the judgment coming upon them. And here in the upper room, Jesus establishes communion to remind those who believe in him of a sacrifice on the cross that freed us from our slavery to sin and the judgment of God. Well, can the worship team come on up? As we often do, we're going to close with a song of worship, but I just want to take a moment just to be quiet. Sometimes we, we, we share aloud and pray aloud, and I just want to take a few moments, a few minutes, just, just to come before the Lord uh, quietly and just to ponder what he's done. You know, as we, we think of the bigger picture and, and the, the Passover and, and the Jews yearly, just this was their most significant feast and they remembered it and they did all these things to, to look back to that. And Jesus wants us to regularly think back to what he did because the, the core of all that we believe comes back to the cross, comes back to that sacrifice, comes back to what Jesus did for our sin. And I just want to take some time just quietly before the Lord to, to really think about that, to thank the Lord for that. And then we're going to have, uh, I'll close in a, in a prayer and then we'll, we'll sing a worship song. But let's just have a few moments. Just I give you an opportunity just to come before the Lord and ponder this and thank him for what he's done for you.